precious blood on their behalf. And what we considered back in verses 1 and 2 of Peter's opening words to this book gave us a true sense, I believe, of the real importance of this letter and a sense of its relevance today for us who, like Peter's initial audience, are in need of grace. Grace which God multiplies and supplies in abundance. For our need of this multiplying grace is just as real today. Would you agree that we need this sufficient, this abundant, this multiplying grace as much today as Peter's audience needed it in their day? Now, as we enter into this main body of this letter, it seems clear that Peter's first goal is to remind his readers of the greatness of their salvation. The greatness of their salvation, which, of course, they did not earn, they could not earn, but received by divine mercy. In fact, in verses 3 through 12 of this first chapter, Peter refers to their salvation no less than three times. In fact, if you've read ahead in this chapter, you know this to be true. No less than three times has he referred to this salvation. For it is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, according to verse 5. It is a salvation that is the outcome of their faith, verse 9. It is a salvation that the inspired prophets of old boldly prophesied of as coming as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, verses 10 and 11. So for Peter, an awareness and appreciation for the greatness of our salvation through Christ is essential to our understanding how blessed we are. And the same is true today. We will not understand how blessed we are till we truly understand and begin to comprehend the greatness of our salvation, as well as to what we are to look forward to as spiritual pilgrims and exiles in this world. And that's what we are. We establish that as well. We are spiritual pilgrims and exiles. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. But we're looking for certain things that encourage our hearts. And yet before Peter expounds on what you and I will receive as recipients of God's gift of salvation, Peter begins here in verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, where he really should begin. And that is by offering words or praise to God the Father. Offering words of praise to God the Father. For any God-honoring, biblically-informed, and spiritually profitable discussion of salvation must begin here. It must begin not with man, nor with the benefits that flow down to man, although there is a time and a place to talk about the benefits, but rather it must begin with God. With God. For salvation is of the Lord. That's the fundamental message of Scripture. Salvation is of the Lord. 
for salvation from its inception in the eternal decree of God to its final consummation at the end of all time is the sole work of God and God alone. In fact, this needs to be emphasized again and again, even in our own day, some thousand, two thousand years after our Lord's appearance upon this earth, we still need to be reminded that salvation is of the Lord. Therefore, any serious discussion of salvation as it pertains to man can proceed only if there is a true and proper praise rendered unto the Father. To begin with, there must be a full and complete acknowledgement on our part that what we have received is from God alone, and that what God has planned and accomplished in saving us, he has done by his own sovereign power and for his own sovereign good pleasure, and not because of any spiritual good or merit found in us. For even the faith that you and I have to believe is a gift from God a gift from God, even the obedience that you and I render to God in the name of Christ is only possible this morning because we were chosen by him unto good works. Thus, to begin any letter or any discussion of salvation without first giving credit where credit is due, without first acknowledging God and what he has done, is to fail to honor God properly, to forget where the true nature of our salvation is. For our salvation can in no sense be attributed to us. Rather, we are saved by grace through faith. Not saved by faith through grace, but saved by grace through faith, and that faith being the result or the fruit of his work within us. No, let us note carefully here that in introducing the subject of salvation to his readers here in chapter 1, Peter does not begin with anything that we did. Peter does not begin with anything that we initiated. But he begins here with God and with his divine work on the behalf of those he has willed to save. For if we are to understand salvation properly, and there is a need today to understand salvation properly, and many still have an improper understanding of salvation, we are to understand it properly. We must view it as an outworking of God's own will an outworking of God's own sovereign decree. In fact, our salvation is not about God fulfilling our will to be saved, but rather it is about God fulfilling his own will to save his own people. And there's a big difference. It's not God existing for us to make us happy, to save us, but rather it is God fulfilling his will that some be saved according to his own purposes. For our salvation is a result of God's determination to redeem a people for himself. It is a perfect expression of his merciful nature. Notice also here in verse 3, and I'm sure you have, that 
Peter is directing this praise to one member of the Godhead in particular. To one member of the Godhead in particular, and that is the Father. The Father who we just sang about. The Father who loved us so. The Father who is identified here as the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For while our salvation is the unified or the collective work of the entire triune Godhead, it is the Father and to his divine work primarily that Peter now draws our attention, our full attention to. For it was God the Father, the very one who revealed himself in Scripture as the source and the preserver and the provider of all things, who actually set forth the plan of redemption. For in revising, or I should say devising a plan by which his love for his people would result in their eternal blessedness, God the Father decreed their salvation. And he decreed their salvation to ensure the fulfillment of this grand redemptive plan that he had formed. And in doing it, God the Father enlisted the unfailing service of his only begotten Son to achieve it. In fact, Peter's reference to God the Father here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, in association with the Lord Jesus Christ, notice he is mentioned as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only speaks of their coexistence together in eternity past, in other words, the Son and the Father were together in eternity, but some scholars see here in the context of this chapter a reference to their united purpose in the accomplishment of salvation. For as Peter praises the Father here by this reference to the Father's relationship to the Son, it is not a stretch by any means to see some hint here of that wonderful covenant agreement that existed between the Father and the Son to procure our salvation. How did the Father, who is being praised here by Peter in verse 3, as the one who is blessed, secure the redemptive services of his Son in the accomplishment of our salvation? Well, our own confession of faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, summarizes the united work of the Father and the Son in chapter 8. And it says the following. Let me read this paragraph to you and listen very carefully as it fills in so many of the gaps, as it helps us to really understand what transpired in eternity past. It says that it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose or ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant or the agreement made between them both, that Christ would be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and the savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. From the Father, Christ did receive a people to be his seed and by him in time to be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. For preceding the saving work of Christ, even before Christ came to this earth and accomplished his redemptive work, there was the choosing, 
the commissioning and the sending of Christ by God the Father. Brethren, I pray that you listen very carefully to what I just read because it tells us in very plain language what the Father is, a God of mercy. Peter calls our attention here in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1 to the Father's great work of mercy. So when we think of the Father, we should think of mercy. When we think of what the Father has done, we should think of his merciful deeds. His mercy, which Peter says, by which he causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For in speaking of that which should impress us the most about the nature of the Father is the fact that he showed any mercy to us at all. That's the great mystery, brethren, how this generous Father would show us any mercy given who we are. For truly, if we understand something about ourselves and our depravity, if we understand something about the beauty and the majesty of the Father, we understand that the Father was under no obligation to show us mercy, nor did we have a right to sue him for it. Maybe you're not familiar with that terminology, but they used to use that kind of terminology to sue someone, to plead for it, to legally intercede for it. We did not have the right to sue him for it, to ask him for it legally, or to demand that he express it to us. For the Father declared throughout the Holy Scriptures, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And certainly it is within God's holy prerogative not to show mercy to any of us. It was his prerogative, given you and I are not the least bit deserving of mercy. And yet in mercy, no Peter states here in verse 3, notice the words great mercy, not just mercy, great mercy. He acted on our behalf, for he caused us, Peter states here, to be born again. Notice every word, because every word is important. For although you and I could never present a single reason why we are deserving of his mercy, if we lived throughout eternity, we could never present a single reason why we deserve it. Although we did not deserve it, God did not withhold mercy from us because of his truly merciful nature, but rather it flowed from him towards us in a measure that Peter calls here in verse 3, great mercy. Notice the text, not some mercy, not mercy measured out sparingly or reservedly, but mercy that was great, mercy that was abundant. Oh, dear brethren, given what Peter reveals to us here, given what we now know, that we are saved on the basis of mere mercy alone and great mercy at that, let us dare not think that we have somehow been denied God's mercy. Let us dare not think that there might be something absent or lacking in the mercy that we've received thus far. For the truth is God has given us mercy. And even this very morning, you and I are surrounded by mercy. Yes, as I said to our men in our men's meeting recently, quoting from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you and I as believers are swimming in mercy. 
we are swimming in a bottomless, boundaryless ocean of mercy surrounding us. And yet we fail to perceive this clearly. We, we fail to see how great the mercy that God has given to us really is. But it is great. And if we leave here with nothing this morning, may we leave here with at least this understanding of how great it was. What is the evidence of this great mercy that's been displayed to us? Well, Peter reveals here in verse 3 that God's mercy has been displayed towards us in a greater measure than we can fully comprehend in that he, God the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. And of course, by making this statement, Peter is once again making it absolutely clear that God and not man is the cause of all that transpires between us and him redemptively. And out of his great mercy, he caused us, he, he performed within us a supernatural spiritual work within us. For had God the Father left us to ourselves, had he not acted in mercy to create something within us by his own design, you and I would have remained in a state of spiritual death. You and I would have been entirely devoid of all hope. And yet because God had mercifully decreed his own action according to his own great mercy, God has also caused, God has also created inside of us as believers this morning spiritual life which he has sovereignly appointed for all of his elect people to receive. And we, for reasons that we cannot fully grasp, for reasons that we cannot fully comprehend and explain this morning, have been chosen recipients of this mercy. We have been the ones who have been chosen to receive this spiritual transformation. For Peter speaks here of God causing us to be born again. Born again, of quickening God quickens us, makes us alive in such a way that new life appears where only death and darkness once existed. It's a language of God creating within us through his divine work, new evidence of life, new evidence of the presence of God in us through the Spirit in the hearts of his own redeemed people. For what causes Change within the heart and within the mind is God's own doing. This wonderful, glorious, supernatural change is God's work. It is a creative, life-giving work that only he can accomplish. And the evidence that he's performed this work, as identified by Peter here in verse 3, is not just the truth that we've been born again, but that we've been born again to a living hope a living hope. For where there is true spiritual life, where there is a mind renewed by the Spirit, where there is a mind focused on God and His power, where there is confidence that God will indeed complete the salvation that He's promised to His elect, there will also be a living hope, a hope that is born of God. The life was given by God. The hope is given by God. 
and yet a hope that personally belongs to each person that God the Father, by sovereign grace and mercy, has spiritually transformed through this new birth. So there's this new birth from God. And with this new birth is new spiritual hope. And of course, in setting forth this living hope as the result or the fruit of or the evidence of being born again, Peter is indirectly urging us to carefully discern this morning with the help of God whether we personally have or possess this living hope or not. For those who remain under the hold of spiritual death, those who are devoid of spiritual life cannot possess this hope, nor do they understand those individuals who do possess this hope. But those who have this hope, this living hope, created in them through the work of God, live daily by this hope. They live daily by it. For truly the evidence that God has been merciful to us, that God has created a supernatural spiritual birth to occur within us, is the presence of this living hope. A hope that is not fixed upon dead works or formalism. A hope that is not centered on human efforts, but a hope which is alive unto God. A hope that is constantly reaching out to God. A hope that is focused, as we'll see, on the power of God in that alone. Of course, the question I have for each of us today, it's a question that I must answer as well, is do I possess this living hope? Do I possess this supernatural, God-wrought, God-given, God-empowered spiritual hope? Now, let me clarify. I'm not asking if you're trying to be optimistic about the future. That's not the kind of hope that I'm talking about. I'm not asking here if you think that things will work out well for you in the end. That's not what I'm asking here. That's not the kind of hope that Peter is referring to here. But rather, I'm asking, do you possess that hope that only comes as a result of God's work in you? That hope that is certain that your salvation will be accomplished as God promised, as God's promised, because it is grounded not in you and not in your hope and not in your optimism, but it is grounded in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Not just the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, but the redemptive victory of Jesus Christ. What is the redemptive victory? that Peter refers to here. Well, Peter refers to it here at the end of verse 3, and that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, for true Christian hope does not find its source and stability among the dead, which is why this present world, which lies in the grip of death, cannot provide us with a living hope. Stop looking to the world to give you hope. The world is in the grip of death. Hope, true hope, doesn't come from death. In fact, if we only look to the world, if we only look to death, we look there in vain. But rather, true Christian hope, that which is living hope, comes by the Spirit 
the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It comes as an outcome to Christ's work. It points to an outcome that is just as certain as the resurrection of Christ was for those who are born of God. For just as Christ was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, we too shall be raised from the dead. That's our hope. Settled in the work of Christ, the victory of Christ. In fact, Christ's glorious and certain resurrection is the pledge of our, our future resurrection. We can be confident that just as we are united by God's power to Christ in this life, so we shall be joined to Christ in the life that is to come. Yes, brethren, this is the progress of God's merciful dealings with us. This is the context through which we must understand salvation as Peter presents it here in chapter 1. We, we must have this context. We must have this framework. We must have this understanding if we are to understand the salvation that Peter refers to so often through this letter. Or before we can appreciate the greatness of our salvation, we must first acknowledge and adore the great God of our salvation. We must see that our, our salvation is the work of God for those whom God has chosen for himself. We must see that the one who purchased our salvation is the one who will raise us from the dead. We must see this because God is a God of mercy that Nothing compelled the Father to be merciful except his own perfect intention to do so. Because he chose to express his mercy towards us, he's caused us to have that spiritual transformation that makes us aware of his mercy. And the awareness of God's mercy should be growing and intensifying daily. Dear friend, I trust that you are truly grateful for God's mercy. For if thoughts of deep gratitude do not swell up in your heart when you ponder the goodness of God towards you in salvation, then maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you need the work of the Holy Spirit to teach you these things. And that's what we ask the Spirit of God to do in our worship services, to teach people the truth of His Word, to do a great work within their hearts, to make them aware of the work that He does in His people, to make them aware of how dependent they are upon His power, to make them aware of what God has done and how grateful they should be, to even make them aware of when they lack it, do you lack these things that we're talking about this morning? If you do, then I trust that the Spirit of God would give you the desire and the courage to seek these truths in the Word of God and to cry out to God in mercy today that He might grant you the very things of which we speak. May God give you, if He is not already, a deeper and growing sense of gratitude for His mercy. May God give you a deeper and growing sense of gratitude that manifests itself in a living hope. For this is what God has extended to us as a pledge of his commitment to us. 
a living hope that is not determined by our ability to look on the bright side of each and every circumstance, but a vibrant hope in our glorious resurrected Savior who promises us the same resurrection life that he now possesses as our victorious Lord and who now extends to us the blessed assurance that the Father's salvation is ours to rejoice in. Yes, these are the reasons to speak out this morning. These are the reasons to sing out and praise this morning. But what great wisdom God has shown in devising for us a plan of salvation. What great mercy He has shown in choosing such unworthy people, people like you, people like me, to be vessels of His mercy. Oh, what kindness He has demonstrated in creating with us new life, new life by means of the new birth and for giving us His Holy Spirit. Imagine that. The Spirit of God dwelling within us. Oh, what comfort the Father has provided to us in giving us these things when there's so little hope to be found in this world. So much hope to be found in God, in the Father and in Christ. Yes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we think of these things and not call Him blessed? How can we claim these things without seeing Him as the source? May our hearts be moved. Let all the heavens and all the inhabitants of the earth below praise his name. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy today. What great truths we've had the privilege of considering this morning, and we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit that he would apply them to our hearts this morning. Father, we confess to you that we are people who do not deserve mercy. We have no right to plead for it. We have no right to sue for it on the basis of our own goodness or works. We do have the right to plead for mercy through Jesus Christ. We would ask this morning that if we've never pleaded for your mercy, We've never asked you to be merciful to us as sinner through the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross. Then give us the wisdom and the grace to do so today. Father, if there's somebody here this morning among us who is outside of grace, who knows nothing of what it means to be born again, who knows nothing of this living hope that we've been talking about, would you work on their heart this morning? Would you draw them by your spirit and by his power to see their need of Jesus and grant them faith and repentance unto life today? Father, for those of us who take your mercy for granted, for those of us who claim to be believers and yet give so little thought these truths and express so little gratitude throughout the day for these blessings. Father, might you give us the grace to repent today, to realize how sinful we have been, how selfish we have been, how short-sighted we have been in light of what you have done for us. Fill our hearts with gratitude today, Father. 
Help us to render praise unto you privately and corporately as we worship together that you might receive all the honor and glory that what Peter talks about here in this first chapter, what he commands, what he encourages the people of God to do may be true among us, that we might be a people who praise the Father, that we might be a people who sing of how great the Father's love for us truly is. Do a work in us today for your own glory, for your own good, we ask these things in Jesus' name.